future and I don't want you in it. <laughs> oh, Father, we just give you thanks and praise for your word. We recognize it as truth. We also recognize that we are sanctified by it, that our mind is renewed by it, that we are guided, convicted, informed, educated, corrected, and every other good thing it does. We agree with it. We align with it. We don't ask it to agree with us. So we pray for your word to come forth today with clarity and conviction. Pray that each of us would have soft hearts prepared to receive. I pray you put a guard on my own mouth that only your words would come forth. The seed that you have for your saints today May it take root in each of our hearts and bear much fruit. We pray against any defensiveness, any distractions, any confusion, any twisting of words. We ask, Father, even that you would command your angels concerning this gathering, that they would encamp around us and protect us in order to receive what you have for us. We ask that the birds would be scattered so the seed can be received. Each of us ask our flesh to yield and the spirit inside of us to give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're talking about agape love, which is purpose-driven, mission-oriented, intentional, actional, actionable, uh, offensive, acts of the Father's sovereign will released by the body of Christ in obedience to our calling to be faithful witnesses in order for God's will to be accomplished. It's a tool. It's not an emotion. It's a tool for harvest, fundamentally. And it's specifically what we prayed for on Pentecost, a day set aside for the body of Christ to be empowered from on high to be a faithful witness. This year we ask for empowerment to walk in agape love. So since that prayer, which has already been answered, 
and is being answered. The Lord's been giving us just real clear, simple steps to walk this out. And uh, they're pretty simple so far. First one is look people in the eyes. Why in the world would we do that? Because the eyes of the lamp is the body and they reveal the truth. Truth that may be well hidden by mask upon mask upon mask. But the word of God is clear that the eyes reveal the truth. And so as God only deals with the truth, and as each of us are being sanctified, or as the unbelieving world is being drawn to the Father, he's only going to speak to the truth. So it's a, it's a simple step, but it's just a step of intentionality to begin looking people in the eyes. And then the follow-up step to that is wait and don't come with prepared answers. And this is just God growing us up. Thankful for that. Growing us beyond just coming with our cookie-cutter Christianese answers whenever we encounter people. He's, he's teaching us that real ministry ultimately is when the Spirit speaks through a vessel. And so one of the things that we as good Christians often do is we get in the way of that by constantly preparing and practicing or going back to kind of our rote answers, our rote scriptures, our favorite testimonies when God might have something totally different in mind. So the commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples is do not prepare what to say. When I put you in front of, I put you, whoever I put you in front of, what you need to say will be given to you. And it will be nothing less than the spirit of God speaking through you. And as he says in Jeremiah 23, Whoever has my word, my words, let him speak my words faithfully. Because my words come like what? Come on, somebody. Like fire and like a hammer. Carrie, you knew it. <laughs> the words of God hit differently. Way differently than the words of men. I don't care how good your words are. I don't care how good my words are. The world doesn't need them. The world needs his word that comes like fire and like a hammer that breaks away the stones. So he's just growing us up. Get past yourself. It's not about you. Your own answers only feed your own ego and your own pride. So when you stand in front of someone and look at them in the eye, wait, and I will give you the words to speak. And when those words come forth, God's will is done. Amen. That's real ministry. That's real witness. An impossible witness. So this is going to all take practice. Recognize that as I'm sharing this, I'm learning it right along with you. And I'm not mastered any of these practices yet all I'm 
encouraging all of us to do is to recognize these as the answers, the beginning of the answers to the prayers that we've made. As was already mentioned, God's faithfulness is breathtaking. So we pray to be empowered from on high to walk in this kind of love, and he just immediately starts teaching us how. So our response must be obedience. What do you got to do to get in the practice of looking people in the eyes? I don't care if you, we, we taped a giant eyeball onto one of our whiteboards. It's kind of creepy, actually. But we're just trying to, we're just trying to be obedient. Right? We're praying before we get out of bed every day. God, help us look people in the eye. Help us to not prepare what to say. When we open our mouth, we want your words to come forth. Just simple prayers. Nothing fancy about it, but he's just teaching us agape love is an act of intention. It's not an emotion and it's not a feeling. It's a purpose. Amen? So, um, last week we talked about one possibility as we look people in the eye and pause and the Father begins to lead us into the truth, what they need in that moment, it might be something. I mean, like a physical thing. And so last week we talked about when the Spirit reveals to you a physical need or a material need, what's our response? Provide. All right, and this... this this came to me in kind of a unique way. Go to Leviticus 19 with me real quick. So the first time this idea um, of not reaping the corners comes up is it's in Leviticus 19. Uh, verses 9 through 11. Someone want to read that for us, please? Okay, so this is a, a commandment that we translate into our, takes a little work to translate it into our day, but the spirit of the law is identical to what it was back then, which is of the whole field that is all this box, recognize that the corners are not to be harvested. So if we translate that into our time maybe most appropriate to say of your whole paycheck or your whole income as a household some of it is not yours and um, what's interesting is God gives this commandment in Exodus 19 I'm sorry in Leviticus 19 but then he repeats it at what appears to be kind of a random place following the prescription 
for Pentecost in Leviticus 23. So Leviticus 23 talks about all the feasts, um, verses seven or 15 through 21 is the prescription for Pentecost. And then literally verse 22 kind of almost seems like it's ta tacked onto the back end of it. We have that exact law repeated. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of the field. When you reap, nor shall you gather the gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave it for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord. So um, this is where it helps to remember Pentecost within the larger redemptive story. Every one of God's feast days are perfect within the larger redemptive story to play a specific part. So Pentecost came in the first year when Moses was on Sinai and was given the law. Pentecost came the second time after Christ was raised when the Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2. Both purposes were identical, to empower the people of God to be faithful witnesses, to be his set apart, holy unto him, kingdom of priests and kings, right? So, so Pentecost itself within the larger redemptive story is a day specifically to empower us, all of God's chosen, to be faithful witnesses that it's all real. Right, so recognizing that as the purpose of Pentecost, to me, communicates something about this commandment being tagged onto this prescription. A prescription about being a visible, believable, powerful witness, which is what Pentecost is all about. Upon that prescription, he adds, it's not all yours. So could it be perhaps, saints, that this mentality, and more importantly, agreeing with this heart and aligning our families with this heart and aligning our congregation with this heart and actually walking out this heart is one of the most powerful ways that we can testify that this is all real. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about everything that God puts in your life recognizing that it's not all yours and it's not all mine. And, and last week I, I made mention that I really felt like the Lord kind of corrected me. Like it's not enough to even say that it's not all mine, but what we really need to recognize is that, is that part of it is actually theirs. Right, like Kirby said last week, if we, if, we rec if we think it's all ours, then when we give, it's like, what's the temptation? Pride. You know, stuff Jesus warns about. Don't, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't do it all for show. Don't, this isn't about you. So what a powerful change of heart to recognize that I'm not giving away what's mine. I'm actually allowing for those whom it already belongs to, to come and get it. Right? That's just a different heart. It's just a different way to look at it. Everyone who um, recognizes what a tithe is, by the way, to Lizzie's point last week, understands this, right? No one who understands the tithe already belongs to God has any problem tithing. 
because it's already his. And it's not difficult to give away, give back what's already his. Right? It's very easy to recognize people who haven't come to grips with that truth because there's a constant struggle. Right? There's this constant, do we still do it? Don't we do it? Who, who do we give? Who, what do you do with it? There's, that struggle exists when people still see it as their own. My kids have never, ever once asked me, what does the church do with the tithe? Why? Because it's not theirs to even ask that. They don't recognize it as theirs. They recognize it as God's, so they give it to where God tells them to give it, and then they're done. Right? It's super easy to recognize. So, so, so God's saying, um, in addition to the tithe, which is a separate thing, there's this mentality that will assist with my people giving offerings, which will be spontaneous, spirit-led times in which you look someone in the eye and pause, and God says, oh, they need this, and you give it to them. And there's no hesitation, and there's no wondering what they're going to do with it. There's, no, there's none of these conditions because we recognize it's already theirs. Everyone with me? Okay. I'm ready to move on then. Okay? <laughs> because there's more to just meeting needs. And want to move on to boldness. So in Pentecost, we prayed to be empowered from on high to walk in agape love, which is to love as Jesus loved, which is a love that is not based on emotions or feelings. It is purpose-driven, mission-oriented, intentional, actionable, offensive in nature. It is a tool to accomplish the Father's purposes. It is the touch point of the body of Christ to the world and he's already answered that prayer. He's already empowering us. So part of the empowerment is coming by education, education on just simple steps to help us walk in this. Steps like look people in the eye, step like do not prepare what to say, my words will be given to you. Steps like when I show you that a need is in place, meet that need. All of these things do what? Declare that God is real by accomplishing his purposes in that moment. This is the only thing that being a faithful witness really is. All right, so today we're going to talk about boldness. Actually, correction. Today we're going to begin to lay a foundation in order to encourage and inspire and empower this congregation to walk in boldness in a time in which boldness is very difficult to walk in. All right, so um, I have no desire today to, to be a cheerleader and to give a hype speech so we all feel pumped to be bold. 
that type of boldness is super fickle and fleeting. I want to lay a biblical foundation to, um, to empower this congregation to be bold when it's very difficult, where it's very difficult. And in particular, as it relates to declaring the gospel to the unbelieving world and confronting sin within the church. So two super popular topics of discussion. Okay. Um, I don't want to belabor this because I can get on a, a big uh, soapbox. Jackson, will you go grab me another water, buddy? Thank you. I, I, can, I can get on a soapbox, soapbox and, and, and go way too far with this, but let me just... Um, boldness, both inside and outside the church... Boldness both inside and outside the church is extremely necessary right now. And, um, and it's expressed in quite different ways, and we're going to get into both of them. Um, but, but both ways are equally difficult and equally under attack right now. And this is something I just want to kind of get off my chest and get in this airspace air because it's affecting all of us and sometimes just being honest about it, it can be helpful. Um, we live in a time in which a biblical prophecy is coming to pass right in front of us. Things that we could read were prophesied about, we could read 10 years ago and really see no way how it could be possible. Things like, there's no more truth in the land. Like, there's going to come a time when lies become truth and truth will become lies. And when good is called evil and evil is called good. And I can look in the mirror and see male parts and decide I'm a female. Like 10 years ago, that was not possible, not even thought to be possible, right? And yet in a very short period of time, all of those things are all around us, are they not? And, and, um, and what we need to recognize is that this is, all super intentional. It's all prophesied about, it's promised, it's going to happen, it's going to continue. And, and, and the why behind it is basically the enemy is seeking to create a culture and a country in which God is completely forsaken, right? And God's truth has been completely eliminated. And the only thing you really gotta do to do that is basically convince people that they can decide what their truth is, right? I can decide despite what my body shows, I can decide what I am. That's like the ultimate rejection of a creator God's order and plan and purposes, right? So if that is up for grabs, everything is up for grabs, 
right? Is, is Jacob's shirt red or is it pink? What's the truth? Well, it's whatever I feel like it is, right? When, when truth has been reduced down to whatever I feel is the truth, is now the truth, now anything goes. And, and in, a, in a society in which truth has been eliminated and anything goes, what's created is an offendable culture that is um, essentially being um, believing that I'm going to decide my truth and whatever I decide my truth is, if someone comes in and, and, and contradicts that or opposes that or comes against it in any way, now I'm under attack and I'm offended and I'm a victim and you're wrong or evil or old-fashioned or religious or judgmental plug in your label here's and I don't want to belabor the point I just want to I just want to lay this as plainly as possible all of this is intentional all of this is the enemy's idea all of this is the enemy's plan and and here's what I believe I believe that fundamentally all of this is ultimately to shut the mouths of those who God is calling to be declaring the gospel and confronting sin. Okay, so, so in other words, a perfect environment has been created, literally saints, in our lifetime in our country, a perfect environment has been created to stop us from sharing the truth. Literally. It's, it's only happened a few times, like recorded in scripture, but it's happened before. When full countries completely forsake God, reject him in almost every way, so much so, um, this quote is, is so important, of, it, it, this is how it always starts. First, we overlook evil. Then we permit evil. Then we legalize evil. Then we promote evil. Then we celebrate evil. And then we persecute those who still call it evil. This has happened a few times in history, recorded in scripture. It's always typically been one or two that would stand up in the midst of all the nonsense and say, that's not the truth, this is the truth. That's not of God, this is of God. That's not real, this is real. And guess what they did to all of them? Killed them. The graves of all the prophets testify to this exact situation we find ourselves in. Exact same situation. So recognize, saints, that when, when I say that we are going to walk in agape love this year, most of us get excited. Most of us are ready for that. 
And then when I say, by the way, this is gonna start with, you gotta start looking people in the eyes. That's super uncomfortable for some people. It's hard to get into that habit. I don't know if y'all have recognized it, but when I intentionally lock eyes with somebody, they look away quick, often. We're just not used to it, right? We don't wanna deal with the truth, right? To not come into a, an environment with our cookie cutter Christianese answers is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to wait on the Lord and trust that he's gonna put his words in our mouth. When we see a, a material need that needs to be met, that can be uncomfortable, especially when it's a sacrifice. So I say all that to say, should we recognize that if we have to pray for empowerment from on high to walk something out, we should probably begin to recognize that what we're being invited to walk out is not easy, maybe even hard. And I wanna just start today by saying all those things that we've started with pale in comparison to the difficulty that we're being called to as it relates to boldness. It is the opposite of what this world wants, the complete opposite. It is the opposite of what this country wants. Unfortunately, it's the opposite of what most of the church wants. And the enemy has done a masterful job of creating a culture that actually will make you and I into the enemy if we share the truth and speak the truth. So it's gonna be hard. Go to Romans chapter one with me. I just wanna make sure that we stick with a biblical foundation, not Eric's soapbox. <laughs> Romans chapter one. I know we've studied it, but I just wanna read one more time. It starts off basically saying, when a culture rejects the creator and starts worshiping the created, which is always just fundamentally the forsaking of God, something's gonna be God, always something. Remember Jeremiah two, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you've built for yourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Whenever we forsake God, he will always be replaced. So in any country, when God is forsaken, another idol will step in. And Paul is saying here that whenever that happens, when you forsake the creator and you start worshiping anything created, the jacking up of our minds that it does is a judgment. He says, I hand you over to a debased mind. And when you start walking in that debased mind, the outflow is verses 28 through 32, uh, a list I hate reading, but it's just honest, it's truth. Someone want to read that for us, 28 through, through uh, 32?
They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knew, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Not only do the same, but start to celebrate it after we legalize it, after we permit it, after we start ignoring it. It's the same progression always. It's the same fruit of forsaking God. And man, it is literally happening all around us. We live in a time and place in which everything offends everybody except sin. Right, and when you have eyes to see it, it's almost kind of like, where's the candid camera? I mean, haven't you had that thought over the last year? Gosh, you're going to be mad about this, and yet this is okay? Like, it's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's always the culture and climate that's created when God is forsaken and truth is rejected and feelings become everything and this is the culture that we are being empowered to speak boldly into and for every prophet who had the guts to speak the truth into that culture in the past they were all killed for it in bad ways. Don't you guys feel pumped up and, and, and emboldened? Isn't this like the best cheerleader speech ever? I love you, I love you guys too much to give you that garbage. This isn't about emotions and pumping you up. It's super real, and what God's calling us to is real. And we need to recognize the reality of the time and place that we find ourselves in. Truth tellers are gonna be rare, they're gonna be hated, they're gonna be persecuted, they're gonna be called the opposite of love. So we need to recognize what is Jesus' love? What is true agape? And central to loving as Jesus loved and walking in this agape love that is purpose-driven and missional and intentional and actionable and focused on God's purposes. Central to it is going to be speaking boldly the truth, which is sharing the gospel to the unbelieving world and exposing sin in the church. So I want to I want to build a super super firm foundation for recognizing how the God of the Bible deals with sin. And it's going to be a little bit of a repeat of 
a handful of weeks ago when we originally talked about agape love and we, when we spent some time kind of biblically defining it, one of the first corrections I made was the idea that, um, that biblical agape love is unconditional. That's almost everyone's first response when they are asked, what is agape love? Well, it's unconditional love. And, and that the, the, tw the twisted version of that idea is that God loves us in spite of anything, everything. Like how we live doesn't affect God's love for us in any way. And that obviously that thought or that theology or that belief about God leads to lawlessness. So the correction was um, that God's love is not unconditional. It's that God's love is not deterred by conditions. And that it's often the conditions that specifically require God's love. And that is because the God of the Bible hates sinners. And I know when I said that a few weeks ago, that might have ruffled some feathers. But I'm going to say it again. That the God of the Bible hates sinners. And that the statement that's often made, maybe I could even go as far as saying the incantation that is often made, is that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Right? And that's often how we want to deal with people. And it's very often just an excuse to not deal with anything. So, um, so I want to recircle back to this because we want to know very specifically how God feels about sinners. Are you curious? How does God feel about sinners? We got to, we got to stick with what's written. Okay. So let's read Psalm 5, 5 and Psalm, 5, Psalm 5, 5 and Psalm 11, 5. Okay, read that one more time. Here's what we're doing. We want to recognize that agape love is the tip of the spear of the body of Christ walking in God's divine nature. Wait. We're invited to partake in God's divine nature, are we not? Right? We've been given every promise, a new heart and a new spirit, to partake in God's divine nature. This is what we were looking at in 2 Peter chapter 1. The tip of the spear, the last thing, the manifestation of the divine nature of God is this agape love. Okay, agape love and God's love specifically has been misrepresented for a long, long time in the church. Misunderstood, misrepresented, taught poorly, taught wrongly. So we want to know what's written regarding how God feels 
about certain topics, one of them being sin, right? The watered down false statement is that the God of the Bible hates sin, but loves the sinner. That is not the God of the Bible. That is no, nowhere in scripture does it say that. What it does say in scripture is what? The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. Okay. You hate all workers of iniquity, speaking about the God of the Bible in the Bible. Now Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Okay, so there are two statements there in the text that speak clearly about how God feels. And notice in neither of those does it say this is how God feels about sin. It's how he feels about who? The sinner. As Paul Washer very boldly and very biblically and very correctly says, God does not cast sin into hell at the end of time. He casts sinners who have rejected him into hell. Right Over and over and over in the story, we see the anger of God kindled, constantly kindled against who? Sinners. I'm not making this up. I'm not twisting the words. I'm not giving my interpretation for dramatic effect. Just look at what's written. The text says that God hates those who work iniquity. Not the iniquity. Okay, now I recognize that most churches and most congregations do not have to wrestle with this. Because they just choose not to talk about it. And what they do talk about is the love side, right? The John 3.16 side. That God loves the world so much that he acted in radical ways on its behalf. Right? First John chapter 4. Many, many, many other passages that speak to God's patience and his grace and his mercy and the fact that he literally is love. So my question is, which side is he? Which one is he? Are we so smart that we have uncovered a contradiction in scripture that needs to be just Facebooked about and shared with the world. So which one is he? I'm asking. Could God be both? Is it possible the God of the Bible is actually both? A God who hates sinners and a God who loves sinners. You think that's the God of the Bible? 
let's, let's just look at how he worded it. Go to Exodus chapter 20 with me. Go to Exodus 20 with me. He doesn't, he doesn't tempt, but he does test. Okay, so I'm going to read Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. The question is, have we found a contradiction? Or is the God of the Bible capable and able and in actual reality both? both the God of love and grace and mercy and patience and the God of wrath and anger and justice and holiness. I recognize most congregations don't have to wrestle with this. But not wrestling with this opens up a response to sin that is not biblical and it is not what we are called to so the whole purpose of building this foundation is we want to know how God feels about it we want to know how God responds to it we got to move beyond God is an unconditional God that just loves us regardless of what we do or how we do it or how we live or what we say or what we watch or what we eat or drink or how we spend, or how we talk to our wives, how we parent our kids. All right, let's, let's let the God of the Bible define himself in a very interesting place, by the way. Okay, so someone read Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, please. Okay, so this is so cool. Remember, remember where God chooses in this text to literally define himself and describe himself, right? Because the where speaks volumes. This is in the Ten Commandments and it's specifically regarding a commandment about what? Creating a false God. Right? That's what this commandment is about. Don't create for yourself a false god. Don't create a carved image god. Okay, so as I've said many times, church in 21st century isn't creating a fish or a son anymore. But we're creating the heck out of carved Jesus. Graven image Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. 
He's a Jesus of our own making that we chip and carve and make that fits our taste better and fits our thoughts better and fits our wants better. And the most popular Jesus, by the way, is the Jesus that's all love and all grace and all mercy and all patience. And guess what? Those are awesome attributes of the God of the Bible. Amazing attributes that I am unbelievably thankful for. But if all we teach on and preach on and think about and create is that Jesus, we are missing a huge part of the actual Jesus. Right? So in the commandment in which he says, don't create a fake God, he describes himself. That's so huge. And in one sentence, or maybe two, saints, he gives and he shows that he is both sides of that equation, does he not? Read it again, someone. Verse, uh, Andrew, read, um, starting in verse 5. Listen to me. The question is, did we find a contradiction? Which God is real? The angry God that hates sinners or the loving God that loves us unconditionally? Could it possibly be that he's both? What's verse 5 say? What did he just say there? Not only does he punish sin, saints, he does what? He passes it to your kids. Does that sound like a God that loves unconditionally, regardless of however you want to live, the God of the Bible is going to love you? Not according to the God of the Bible. According to the God of the Bible, if you choose to hate him and reject him and forsake him, and live in iniquity, that's going to get passed on to your kids in one way or another. Holy cow. God, give us eyes to see. But, verse 6. That's super important. If that's not enough, if you think that's an isolated event, if you need more convincing, go to Exodus 34 with me. Because one more time in Scripture, the God of the Bible chooses to describe himself. Now, if you're God and you choose to describe yourself, you could include a lot of things, could you not? You could share a lot of things. God only does this for Moses this one time. This is the God of the Bible choosing in words to describe himself. And what does he share? Someone read verse 6 for us. 6 and 7, I guess. I got this one. The Lord, the Lord your God. This is God speaking, describing himself as he passed in front of Moses. The Lord is describing himself. The Lord, the Lord your God, merciful and gracious long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. End the sermon. Everyone goes home happy. Everyone goes home grateful. Everyone goes home believing that the God of the Bible is just all love 
And regardless of what we do, he has patience and mercy and he will forgive anything. So I can go on and on and on and on in my idolatry and none of it will be deterring of God's love. That's a super popular Jesus. What, babe? What? Oh. All right, let's continue. Verse uh, 7, mercy to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and to the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So both times in very unique texts, recognize the uniqueness of the third commandment Recognize the uniqueness of God passing in front of Moses and describing himself. These are very unique things. Time in which God wants something about himself to be known. Or specifically as it relates to the commandments, something about himself that he doesn't want to be unknown or doesn't want to be changed or doesn't want to be altered or doesn't want to be watered down or doesn't want to be deleted. That's what that text shows me. Why would he put it in the, in the commandment about false gods? Because maybe he knew somewhere down the road when the, when, the, when the enemy is in the church and the congregation is all flesh, that this false Jesus that is all love would be super appealing. And what happens when the false Jesus is the head and it's all love, what happens? What happens to the confrontation of sin? It's called judgment or legalism or fanaticalism. It's called non-loving. Right? What happens when truth is spoken against the lies? When men love the darkness? And they've been taught and programmed and conditioned that they can live however they want. The God of the Bible is still going to take care of them. Still going to answer their prayers. Still going to protect their families. Like we got to flip the whole thing over. And recognize what if the God of the Bible was speaking into the culture? What if the God of the Bible was speaking into the culture today? Does the God of the Bible show mercy to sin? Does he show quarter to sin? Does he turn a blind eye to sin? Does he overlook sin? Does he excuse sin for the sake of what? Not offending. Don't offend. Don't ruffle feathers. Don't upset anybody. But guess what? That's the culture that's, that the enemy has created, is it not? That's the exact culture the enemy has created. So is the God of the Bible both? Yep. So does that require the body of Christ to recognize that we can both and we must both align with the God of the Bible that does love and does show patience and does have astounding mercy and grace. 
and yet cannot and will not tolerate sin or excuse the sinner. So how do we walk in both? How do we share boldly when we look in people's eyes and when we recognize the truth and when God puts a word in our mouth for them that is going to confront sin in their life? Do we have a biblical foundation to recognize that as part of the divine nature? That's all I want to get to today. Do we have permission biblically to recognize that the God of the Bible confronts sin, exposes sin, does not turn a blind eye, does not overlook or excuse away? Because if we have that foundation, we can build from there. So I recognize that today was going to leave us a little um, what's that? A little cliffhanger. A little unfinished. Not wrapped up. That's, I think, supposed to be the point. I think that's supposed to be the stopping point. Because we're, we're building towards a boldness that is not fickle and a boldness that is not fake and a boldness that is not based on emotions, but a boldness that's based on the nature of God. So that when we partake in his nature and have the opportunity to speak those bold words, we do not hesitate. Despite the fact that Satan has successfully created the perfect environment for that to be very difficult. It's okay to agree that it's difficult. It's okay to agree that it's going to cost us. It's okay to agree that very few people are doing this. What's not okay is to stop and not obey what we're being asked to do. So stay the course. And next week we'll add to the foundation. Those texts were Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6, Exodus 34 verses 5 through 7. And your homework is to go back and read John chapter 15. And in particular, verses 9 and 10. When you read John 15, 9 and 10, which we read last week, I hope you recognize that what Jesus is saying is the beginning of the balance that we're to find. The balance of the God of the Bible being both 
holy and gracious and angry and loving and full of wrath and full of mercy. So I pray that we have ears to hear how Jesus in that text is explaining it. And Father, we pray for your word to just continue to inform and educate. Pray that your spirit would continue to lead us into all truth. We pray specifically that any lies that we have believed about you, any lies, lies from my own mouth, lies from any other source, anything, Lord, that we have believed about you that is not true, I pray that those things would be exposed, repented of, and removed. We want to know you correctly. We want to know you truthfully and honestly. We want to know the real you. Any part of our understanding of who you are that is incorrect, Lord, would you expose it? Continue to sanctify us. Continue to renew our minds to know you better, to follow you better, to represent you better, to better partake in your nature, and specifically to better love as you loved. We ask for empowerment one more time from on high to walk in agape love. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.